Would you join with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have designed your church and how the gospel is not just a philosophy. Our salvation is not just ideas or even rules, but it is news. News that is, uh, news that is best proclaimed and announced. And so, Lord, I pray for this time when it will be preached, announced, uh, that you would uh, bless your word, that you would soften our hearts to receive it. Lord, I pray you'd make me faithful. We pray that your word would do the work for which it was intended. Turn our hearts to Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you remember the moment or the time when you were converted. When before that moment, you were not a Christian, but after that moment, you were. Before that moment, you were an enemy of God. After, you were his child, his heir. Before, you were a child of wrath, with the wrath and judgment of God hanging over your head to be received when your life ended. But after, you were a child of grace. Beforehand, it would have been presumptuous. It would have been wrong. It would have been deceived to expect God to be faithful to you. But after that moment, it would have been presumptuous. It would have been wrong to deny that he would be faithful to you. From darkness to light, from death to life. And there's many in our church who do not remember that moment. They can't even really point out to when it happened. Now, perhaps it's because their memory was, has faded. Or because they were young enough that their memories were not developed enough to remember and fully appreciate all that the Lord had done. It's my prayer that the young children, even the new babies in our church family, would never be able to remember the first time that they heard the gospel. Because it was clearly articulated from the first moments of their life. It was spoken to them and it was sung into their ears and hearts. It's also likewise a good prayer that these children would trust the gospel with a childlike faith so very early that they would not be able to remember a time when they didn't trust in Christ. Some can't remember because of the mercy that God showed you in your immature early years as a Christian, where you should have had no confidence that you were in Christ, but God was merciful and patient with you even in those years. As you can't be sure if you were a Christian at, at the time or not. All you can know is that God was merciful and patient with you. Now you can see the evidence and lasting effects of your conversion. And the Lord has provided you with evidences of his grace. It is a delight to hear the story of a 99-year-old saint who can never remember a time when they were not aware of their need of salvation and neither can they remember a time when they weren't aware of and trusting in Christ's provision for that salvation. And it is equally a joy to hear the story of a person who can clearly remember the moment of their salvation, of their conversion. Nevertheless, whether you can remember or you cannot remember, the Apostle Paul instructs the, Corinthians church, the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. 
He says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet that test? Our memories are weak. And what we are instructed to do is to test ourselves now more than to test ourselves in the past. Are you now in Christ? Now do you know the Lord? And today we look at one of the most beautiful pictures Events which clearly demonstrate the conversion of a person from death to life. We need to look at the moment when Ruth, a Chemosh-worshipping sworn enemy of the Lord and his people, was transferred out of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Last week, we looked deeply at the sorrow and shame from which the Lord would redeem Naomi. And today we begin, we begin to see, we get to watch the Lord redeeming her. And it begins with noting that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. I want you to read with me just the first verse of our particular text right now. This is Ruth chapter 1 verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. The word visited is a very powerful and loaded word in Scripture when it's used of God, because God is omnipresent. And that means for our Sunday school kids, omnipresent, that means that God is everywhere present, always, all at the same time. He's everywhere all at once. So when the word of God speaks of him visiting his people, it means something especially powerful and meaningful. And the word visited is used in two ways when it speaks of the Lord. In the Bible, it can mean one of two things. It can mean either judgment or blessing. Something happens. God is doing something. The Lord is noticeably doing something when his actions are present and noticeable. So whether this is a good thing or a bad thing depends entirely on your relationship to him. Now imagine this, if there's two groups of soldiers and they're in, involved in a shootout in some hilly remote area, some hiding behind this hill, some hiding behind that hill, and they're shooting at each other, trying to save the lives of, of their, their own lives and, and that of uh, their, their team. And imagine that the sound of a helicopter is approaching. That's either going to be good news to you or bad news, depending on what flag is on the side of that aircraft. The relationship with the people in that aircraft. So the Lord is patient and he is long-suffering. He's not punishing sin right away. But when he does determine that he will punish, it is said that he will visit a person's sin upon them. Would you see this with me in Exodus chapter 32, if you've got your Bibles, Exodus chapter 32, 34. It, there's a number of places, but we'll just pick one for now. Exodus 32, 34, it says this. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. This is kind of like a homeowner waiting patiently, giving time for tenants, people renting the home, 
to stop trashing the place before he shows up. And when he arrives, it's not good for the tenants if they are trashing the place. The Lord is patient and he's always everywhere, but when he does visit, it will not be for blessing of his enemies. But that same word, as terrifying as it is for enemies, or should be for his enemies, it is one of the sweetest words to hear for the children of God. Because it is used of the activity of the Lord to bless them. God will visit us. He will bless us. Hundreds of years before this particular event that we're reading about today, hundreds of years before Naomi, the Lord promised her ancestor, Sarah, that she would conceive and bear a son in her old age. And many years passed and it did not happen. But in Genesis 21, verse 1, we are told that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And then later, when Israel came to Egypt to escape a famine, Joseph, the son who had brought them there, he gave in the following instructions, prophesying of the day when the Lord would bring them out of Egypt. So now they're entering Egypt to escape a famine. And Joseph says to them, before they are released from Egypt, many years before they need to be released from Egypt, this is what he says in Genesis 50, verse 25. Surely, or sorry, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And then years after Joseph died, Israel became slaves in Egypt before they were able to leave. They were under the crushing and murderous hand of Pharaoh. And the Lord sent Moses to lead them out of Egypt. You remember the story that God spoke to Moses in a burning bush. And afterwards, he called Moses to gather the people, to assemble the people because he had good news to tell them. Get together. We are going to, we have good news from the Lord. And when he had assembled the people to tell them what he had heard from the Lord, the good news, the gospel that he had heard from the Lord, I want you to listen to how their reaction is described. This is in Exodus chapter 4, 31. So he tells them of what God will do. Exodus 4, 31 says this, And the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. One of the sweetest verses in Scripture. Imagine this people oppressed. They were slaves 400 years. And they hear that God had visited them and they bow their heads and worship. The sweetest words that many of them had ever heard. Many years later, Israel receives a word of judgment for her sin, indicating that she will be removed from her land and be in exile in Babylon. And she is told that it will be long, but it will not be forever. I want you to hear how the Lord describes why this exile will not be permanent. This is Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Yes, there is a verse before Jeremiah 29, 11. We're going to read it. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to the land of Israel. 
Now, finally, in our sort of tour of what this word, the, the emotional impact of this word visit means, we're going to read from 1 Peter 2. And this talks about the end of time, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. And by Peter, this is called the day of visitation. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this is the day when the patience of the Lord will run out. God is patient, but his patience will run out. This is either going to be good or bad for you. His patience is long. It's going to end and he will bring judgment and punishment. He will visit the sins upon his enemies. He will not give them worse than they deserve, but he will not but he will give them what they deserve. He will bring justice and judgment. And his enemies who have sinned against him, against his law, will be sent to hell to receive a punishment fitting for their sin. And hell is the place where the Lord visits a person's sins upon them. And that is the terror and it is the certain fate of those who are not in covenant with the Lord who are not his children. But this is also the day when the Lord's patience with the suffering of his people will run out. When he will bear it no longer and come to end their suffering and bring them to glory. Remember that beautiful phrase that we read earlier this month? That the Lord became impatient with the suffering of his people? Such a beautiful phrase And that is the joy and hope of the people of the Lord on the day of visitation. Two groups. One for whom the visitation of the Lord will be pure terror because he is not their Lord. And the other group for whom the visitation of the Lord will be pure delight because he is their Lord. It's important to know that the Bible shouts, almost more clearly about this than anything else about the two groups. That the difference between them is not that one is sinful and the other is not sinful. That's not the difference between the two groups. That one is sinful and the other is without sin. That is not the difference. The difference is that for one of them, the Lord has taken their sin upon himself already. He has redeemed them from their sin. And God himself has sworn to be their God forever. An oath, a covenant from God that he will not visit their sin upon him, on them because he has already visited their sin upon his son on the cross. So now back to Ruth and Naomi. Back to the question of conversion. And so as we read, the Lord is painting for us a picture. He's using the events in the lives of these people. A picture of a woman being transferred from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. A woman uh, being taken from death to life. A woman guilty as any other woman or man. Being added to the people whom the Lord visits with blessing. So brothers and sisters, friends, As we watch, 
perhaps the Spirit of God will remind you of your own conversion. And you will be moved to worship and thanksgiving and awe at the thought of once being a person who ought to have feared the coming visitation of the Lord to being a person who now can long for the visitation of the Lord. And you see what he did for Ruth, he has done for you. Perhaps, though, you see in your mind's eye a picture of something. When you look at Ruth, you see something that looks nothing like your own. And the Spirit of God finally confronts you with the fact that you have not yet been converted. You have Christian-ish beliefs and Christian-ish actions. And on the outside, you maybe look like a Christian, but you are not truly yet part of the people whom the Lord visits. And if this is so, let the Word of God do its coveting work in you. Coveting. Let it work jealousy in you so that you want what Ruth received. You want what the believers in this church and around the world have received and call out to Christ to do that work in you. Do you belong to the people whom the Lord visits? Let's read this passage together in its entirety. Ruth chapter 1, 6 to 18. Then she, this talking about Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest." each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me to, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. First point that I want you to see here in this passage is 
forsaking all others. Forsaking all others. We're looking at what conversion looks like. What redemption looks like. What a person responds to the salvation of the Lord. Not to save themselves, but to respond to the salvation that the Lord has provided. Forsaking all others. There is a need to forsake others. This is a phrase that's often used in weddings. For marriages, there is no room for other lovers. No room for other husbands or wives, either in addition to or afterward, unless death parts you. You cling to one another and you forsake all others. And this choice was put very clearly before Naomi's daughters-in-law, who were now both widowed. They could either go with Naomi and join her people, or they could remain in Moab to be with their people. They could either go with Naomi and belong to her God, or they could call on the gods of Moab. There really was no other option. In those days, most peoples believed in national gods. They had these national idols that were essentially limited to that particular people. To belong to that people was to confess that you belonged to that particular god. In the case of Ruth and Naomi, their national god, which they worshipped and were loyal to, was Chemosh. Notice that the option was to return to their gods. It says gods, plural. Why would that have been? If they had a national god. Wouldn't he be jealous? Wouldn't he want them to only worship him? Why wouldn't Chemosh be upset if they worshipped gods? Well, actually, no. Because for the unimportant people, for those who were not very powerful, they didn't have access to the national god. They weren't important enough for him to pay any attention to them. So they had to call out to lesser gods down the hierarchy, perhaps the gods and, and spirits of their clan or village. But the Lord God of Israel was not merely a God who was sovereign over Israel, but who was sovereign over all nations, all peoples. And yet he is a jealous God. Redemptive love, saving love, and devotion is like a marriage and a marriage rightly has no room for other lovers. To turn to the Lord was to turn away from all other idols, all other gods. Ruth and Orpah could not be the people of the God who visits and belong to the people of Chemosh. Chemosh's false priests may have allowed it. If they were paid enough money, they would, they would have allowed it. But the Lord would certainly not allow this. See, the Lord Jesus, descendant of Ruth and Naomi, God in the flesh, the Redeemer of Israel and of all who trust in him, when he lived on the earth, was asked what the greatest commandment was. And his answer is recorded a few places in the New Testament, but we'll look at, at Mark chapter 12, verse 29 to 30. He's asked what the greatest commandment was, and he answered, Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So I want you to notice two things from that answer from the Lord Jesus. First of all, in light of this passage, each one of us stands condemned. Every single one of us. The instruction is not just love the Lord. It is to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And not one of us can say, being truly honest, that we have loved the Lord with all our minds, hearts, and strength. Even if we claim that we have loved him, by this passage, I stand condemned and so do you. I want you also to notice that this passage assumes that this God has a people. That should be enough to exclude the fact that, that this God has a people because no one would worship him and love him with their whole hearts. So he probably, logically, shouldn't have a people. But it, it does assume that he has a people. And that's a people for whom he will somehow atone for their sins. He will give them new hearts. He will convert them. He will make them a new creation which loves him and seeks to please him with their whole hearts. And that's the choice between, before Ruth and Orpah. Orpah turns to the life that she knew. Ruth considers the choice, and at a great cost to herself, she forsakes all others and turns to the Lord, the God of Israel, and of all the heavens and earth. It's also the question posed to every other human whom God graciously brings in contact with the gospel. Not everybody in Moab had heard of the covenant, had been introduced to it, but Ruth and Orpah had. And you, like Ruth and Orpah, are one of those people whom God has ordained and has arranged that you will hear of the God of Israel. He made sure that you would hear of the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made sure that you would hear of the gospel. And so will you be a person who belongs to the Lord alone, forsaking all others? It's an eggs-in-one-basket kind of proposal. For Ruth and Orpah, the stakes were extremely high. Humanly speaking, Orpah made the wisest choice. If there was no God in Israel who could redeem and give rest, Ruth was making a terrible decision because she was cutting off all other hopes, all other options, all other saviors. But at great cost, Ruth forsook being part of the people of Chemosh, putting her hopes alone in belonging to the people whom the Lord visits to bless. That brings us to our second point, and that is, who gives you your identity? Who gives you your identity? I hope you can see that taking the Lord as your God makes you a part of his people. God doesn't have only children. Not adopted ones anyways. Taking the Lord as your God makes you a part of his people. And we spoke last week about the sweetness and affection which a child of God will have for the people of God. They now belong to you and you belong to them, each helping the others to know and enjoy the sweetness of the love of God which is yours because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your people also give you your identity. It is a description of what you all share in common who you are all collectively. It wasn't just your people will be my people. There's a list of other things added. Where you live, I will live. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried. All these things incorporate the identity of the people of God. This is who we are. We are the people 
who worship this God. And so this is now her chosen identity. Ruth is now first and foremost, the number one thing about her is that she is an Israelite. The best way to describe Ruth now is that she belongs to the people of the Lord God of Israel. She is chosen to belong to the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth. This is also now her identity. She's no longer a Moabite. She has a new identity. She has new customs, new standards, new hopes, new confidence. So true to truly belong to the Lord who visits his people is to take on a new identity. Now, in the new covenant, which is after Christ's death and resurrection, the new covenant in which we stand right now, this is not requiring a removal of your national identity, other than most of a Dutch identity, if you happen to be Dutch like me. At least not completely. You can be Canadian and also a Christian. One can be a Jamaican and also a Christian. One can be a Brazilian or Paraguayan and also belong to the people whom the Lord visits. But all identity which doesn't fit with that identity must be renounced. And Paul tells Titus in Titus 1 to reject such labels rather than embracing them. See, it may be true that all Cretans are liars, and it may be a badge of honor that they wear and defend their lying. Well, you can't blame me, I'm a Cretan. Cretans lie. But that cannot be true if you are a Cretan who belongs to Christ. You will now be a Cretan who fights the impulse to lie and who is forgiven for his lying because of Christ's sacrifice and who has received a new identity from Christ. You are no longer a liar. You are a saint of the people set apart for the Lord to enjoy his love. And, and I want you to read with me 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. And, and here there's this list of former things and which God has redeemed you from. But I want you to notice, if you've got your Bible, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. I want you to notice that it's not sins which are listed. Notice it's not sins that are listed. It's actually identities that are listed in relation to those sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's an identity, the unrighteous. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this, though. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is who you were. But you are now washed by the blood of Christ. To turn to the Lord Jesus Christ is to renounce sin, but sinful identities as well. You no longer can say, I'm an idolater, that's who I am. Or, I'm just an adulterer, I can't help it. It's who I am, I'm a man who looks at pornography. Or, I'm just a man who's rude and brash. I'm a reviler. That's just me. Or, I'm a homosexual. That's my identity. Or, I'm a guy who hoards money. I inherited this fear of bankruptcy from my parents. Or, I like nice things. Greedy. If this is truly the case, if this is your identity, whether you got it from your nationality or your family 
or your experiences or the social group that you identify with, if this is how you justify your behavior, if this is your standard which you insist should be held by you and which others should embrace in you, then you do not belong to the people whom the Lord visits and you will not inherit the kingdom of God because he gives his people a new identity. All other identities which fall short of the word of God must be renounced by you. And that's what repentance means. And dear Christian, when you sin, confess it to the Lord. Agree with him that this is sin. Agree with him that it is not your identity, no matter how you feel or how you've acted. It is your former identity. And trust that he will not only be faithful to forgive you of that sin, but to cleanse you, to give you strength to walk in the new identity which he has given to you. And so for all intents and purposes, reading this beautiful story of Ruth, Ruth was no longer of the people who belonged to Chemosh. She was now one of the people whom the Lord visits to bless. Our third point is this. It's more of a question. Where will you seek rest? Now, the presenting the obvious problem was that these women were without a way to continue their families. So Naomi's family line would be ended at death. Their inheritance would be lost at death. Death would be able to rob them of the blessings of God. This is a real problem. Ruth and Orpah and Naomi were also without an ability to continue their family and so create essentially a living pension, care for them, rest. If this problem was solved, it would be described as finding rest. And I wonder if you saw that in verse 9. If you see that with me in verse 9. Ruth 1 verse 9. This is Naomi talking to the daughters-in-law. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. The idea of rest is actually borrowed from the book of Judges, which is the setting for this story. One of the reasons why we read, we, uh, we read a bunch of uh, the book of Judges and how I preached through this. Because when they say rest in this story, it's so loaded. It's the opposition of struggle, as the opposition of pain, opposed to suffering or even war, as opposed to feeling guilt and shame. Remember, when God sent a judge to redeem the people with, uh, from the terror caused by their sin, remember they were continually assaulted by enemies because of their sin, Whenever a judge came to redeem them, the conclusion of that judge's work each time was that the land was at rest. So Orpah chose to find rest in a Moabite home under the care of Chemosh. And Ruth stood a good chance of settling down and finding rest, earthly rest, in Moab. But she had virtually no chance of finding rest in Israel as an already married enemy woman. But the only way she would find rest in Israel is if Israel's God was real, 
and if he intervened to give her rest. And so she chose to seek rest in the God of Israel alone, trusting that he would provide rest. And God is faithful to provide rest eternally for all who call on the name of Christ alone. See, you need rest from your guilt and shame. As I do, and everyone who has ever lived, save the Lord Jesus Christ. You need rest from the reality that you naturally stand in a war and opposition to God because of your sin. You need rest from the nagging reality that you will one day face death. And so when you feel guilty, what do you do? When you feel this unrest of guilt threatening your peace of mind. Well, when Ruth was a Moabite, she would have called out to Chemosh or one of his minions and would have had to pay for it with a sacrifice. And then perhaps she would be able to sleep. When other cultures feel guilt, they might preach that there is no guilt. The solution to feeling guilt is to keep saying, there is no guilt, there is no guilt. It's just, it's just an imagination. Or to say that the problem of people feeling guilty is those people who tell people that God has standards. And that helps them sleep. But imagine a God who has no standards. And who was not angry at injustice. When people of other religions feel guilt, they might trust that they will not be treated as guilty because of their nationality. Or perhaps they do some good deed to pay for it. And they think of all the good things they've done and that helps them feel better and ease that nagging unrest of their guilt. Or perhaps they put on Netflix and binge watch so they don't have to consider their guilt and then they fall asleep because they've distracted themselves from their guilt. Or maybe buy something new and that rush of delightful feelings distracts them for a time. All other rest from guilt before God must be renounced other than the rest which the Lord provides. The Lord provided a husband and a child to Ruth to give her temporary rest, but actually, through that husband and son, and through that son's great, 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 times a lot, grandchild, Jesus Christ, the Lord provided to Ruth and all who trust in him, rest. Jesus is our rest. He is our Sabbath, our rest. And he is our only rest. See, if you were to stand before God and he would ask, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your plea be? How would you plead? What would give you confidence to be able to stand in that moment? What would give you rest from your worries about how that would go? Would you say, I've gone to church? Or I've been a good person? Or I love my family a lot? Or I'm not as bad as that guy? Or I, I keep the Ten Commandments? Or perhaps I have no guilt to pay for? Or I've done the best I could. Or I'm sincere. Or I believe there is a God. 
But those, none of those, will give you rest. They do not make you a part of the people whom the Lord visits with rest. Brothers and sisters, if you have renounced all other rests, all other pleas for rest, other than that Christ died for your sins and has given you his righteousness, you certainly and permanently belong to the people whom the Lord visits with rest. No matter how you feel, no matter how worried you are, you have rest. If your obedience calms your guilt, though, or if you deny sin in order to avoid the feeling of guilt, you may not have yet been added to the people whom the Lord visits. When you are confronted with sin, say by reading the Bible or hearing a sermon or by a family member or friend who points out something in your life which doesn't line up with the new identity which God gives to his people, how do you react? What is your defense? It's not that bad. God would understand because of who my parents are. You would too if you had a wife like mine. God wouldn't expect us to keep those. Or you do too. Or I'm not as bad as those people. Or you're right. That was who I was. But I have been washed by the blood of Christ. And that is no longer me. And I do need to repent. And then call out to God, confess that sin, and trust that Christ's death paid for it and frees you from the slavery and also the identity of that sin so that you can renounce it as something you formerly did, but not any longer. Brother, sister, if this is your plea, that Christ has given you rest from your guilt, and also a new identity, a new citizenship, and you've forsaken all other, please rejoice because Christ will return. He is impatient with your suffering. And there will be a time when he can bear it no longer. He will not delay. And on the day of visitation, you will share in the joy of belonging to the people whom the Lord visits to bless rather than to judge. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we've considered the mess that you have found us in, the fact that we belong to a people who, by identity, were enemies of yours and happily so, who invented versions of you so that we could say we had allegiance with them, but never really with the true God. Lord, we're grateful that you have found us in that and that you have redeemed us in a way that we certainly needed, Lord. We could never have redeemed ourselves, even if you gave us all the right rules and instructions, because we needed new hearts that even wanted to be redeemed. And we are grateful that your son suffered as an enemy in our place for our sin on the cross, and that he died, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose from the dead so that we could be the people whom you visit with blessing because you have already visited our sins 
upon Christ. Lord, help us to walk in that new identity, to renounce all other identities, to renounce all other hope, to renounce all other rest. And Lord, where we are hedging our bets, where we are hoping in you and other things, we're keeping our options open. Would you, by your word and your spirit and your people, bring those to our attention and mercifully free us from those and grant us repentance? And Lord, there are people who are listening who aren't yet saved. Save them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.